0: Welcome to the Northwood Baptist Church Podcast. This is Tommy Metter, lead pastor of Northwood Baptist in North Charleston, South Carolina. And I'm so thankful that you've taken the time to listen to the following message. If you'd like to learn more about our church, go to northwoodbaptist.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and subscribe to our podcast so you can have new content delivered to your device every single week. I hope the following message blesses you and helps you connect faith to life. Uh, We are in Acts chapter 8 this morning. Acts chapter 8. We're going to study... Uh, The first 25 verses of Acts chapter 8. But in just a moment, we'll read together from Acts 8 verses 1 through 8. So find Acts chapter 8, if you will. If you are new to the Bible, uh, Acts isn't too difficult to find. Just go to the New Testament and find the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the fifth book of the New Testament is the book of Acts. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. If you don't own a Bible, in the seat before you in the book rack, you should find a copy of the Bible. Take that copy of the Bible, open it up to the book of Acts with us. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home. With you, begin to read it and learn about the God who loves you and desires a relationship with you. We've been in Acts now for a couple months, and we're just in this wonderful journey of seeing how God was at work in the life of the early church to, to take the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And it's a fascinating story, and we're looking at a fascinating story this morning uh, from Acts chapter eight. So, so I, I don't know uh, how often you'd like to go to the beach. We like to go to the beach whenever we can. It's just a really enjoyable, obviously, to be on the coast, and so. So there was a gentleman who was walking the beach in Florida this past week. And as he was walking the beach, uh, uh, looking for whatever he was doing, maybe he was looking for seashells or maybe just watching the waves uh, cr- crash on the, on the sand. I, I really don't know. But as he was walking, something washed up. He, what washed up was a bottle. And so in that bottle, he opened it up Were uh, several things. One in the bottle were the ashes of someone who died. That's always a fun beach find, isn't it? And, and so this is what he found. He opened up the bottle and the ashes of someone who died uh, was in the bottle. And in the bottle, along with the remains of that individual who'd passed away, was a letter. A letter from the mother of the person whose ashes were in the bottle. It was her 39-year-old son. He had he had apparently died unexpectedly and tragically. And so 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 when he died, she took his remains, his ashes, after she had cremated him, and put them in this bottle along with a note. And the note simply says something something to the effect of, uh, "My son, we lost him unexpectedly and and tragically. But he loved to travel. And so so when he died, I thought I would send him on one last journey." And so I put his ashes in this bottle and put it out to sea and, and if you find this bottle, do me a favor let me know where you found it text me, call me, and then put it back out to sea and let it keep on floating to where it's going to float to, right? And in that bottle she had the ashes, she had the letter and she had $4. $4 so that if you found the bottle, you could find a way to communicate with her. I guess she thought you were going to go to a pay phone. I have no idea. But anyway, any rate, there are $4, $4, $1 bills wrapped up in this bottle. And so there she had it. And, and so the gentleman found the bottle and he, he contacted her and let her know where in Florida he had found the bottle and then put it back out to sea. And now somewhere in the great ocean, it's floating around again. And I don't know, maybe when you go to Folly Beach this week sometime, you're going to be walking the beach and and you're going to find it, and you're going to read it and put it back in the sea. I have no idea. But as I read that story, man, I was just reminded, and maybe you were reminded too, as I just told you that story, Man, life is short. And someday, we're all going to end up ashes. Whether you, you, you are, are cremated or whether you're buried in a casket, uh, your, your body is going to go back into this earth, and it's going to be over and if you're like me, I mean, listen, I, I'm, I hit 40 last year, and so I'm getting a little bit older, not much, but, but, but as I'm getting older, man, it seems, and you know this too from experience, you know this, right? It just seems as if life just moves along at a quicker pace. Faster and faster the days go on. Can you believe we're almost at the end of 2019? Next year will be 2020, It seemed like just yesterday we were worried about Y2K, and here we are, 2020. Some of you don't even know what Y2K is, but it was a big deal, right? My son will turn nine years old, my oldest son. It seemed like just yesterday he was born. Hudson started kindergarten. It's unbelievable how fast time is passing me by. And and as time passes me by, and as time passes you by, every day we have a choice a choice as to how we are going to spend the rest of the time that God gives us on this earth. And that's why this story in Acts chapter 8 is so fascinating. Because the story in Acts chapter 8, it shows us a contrast of the kinds of lives we can choose to live. On the one hand, we can choose to spend the rest of our days to live for the glory of God. And on the other hand, we can choose to spend the rest of our days to glorify God. Ourselves. We see this contrast very clearly in Acts chapter 8 in a story of two distinct men, one choosing to live his life for the glory of God and the other choosing to live for himself. And and as they both choose their own path, uh, the the contrast could not be any more stark than what it is in this passage of Scripture. And so as we look at this story this morning, I, I want you to make some choices today. I want you to choose to spend the rest of your days living for the glory of God and not yourself. And I want to show you how we're going to do that this morning. So take your Bibles, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. When you find that passage, go ahead and rise to your feet as we honor the ring of God's word together. Acts 8, 1 through 8. Beginning in verse 1, this is what the Bible says, And Saul approved of his execution. Speaking of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian faith, we looked at his story last Sunday morning. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for time to be in your word together. And we know that we're in this place, in this capacity together We know as we study your word together that you're speaking to us, each and every one of us. And so as you speak to us this morning, through your spirit, through your word, help us be a people who listen carefully, who desire to not only hear your word, but to obey it. And Father, I know every single one of us in this room, today we're going to have to make a choice. Tomorrow we're going to have to make a choice. And if you give us Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday of next week, every day we're going to have to make a choice as to who we will live for And so, Father, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that your spirit and the power of your son, Jesus Christ, will be so compelling to us that we would choose to spend every day living for you. So, Father, have your way now. Help us to listen carefully. Help us to live with hearts that want to obey you, surrender to you, and live by faith. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So, amen. Remember back to last week. As we look at Acts chapter 7, we saw the story of Stephen. Uh, This this ordinary man who's filled with the Spirit of God, who preaches the Word of God, and as a result, he's arrested, and he goes before Caiaphas, the very same high priest that sentenced Jesus to death. And as he stands before Caiaphas, he goes face-to-face, toe-to-toe with Caiaphas and and telling Caiaphas that he had murdered, crucified the Son of God, the Messiah. And he tells Caiaphas and the religious council that was there on that day That Jesus Christ was the true temple and not the building, the facility, the structure they were standing in. In those words, when he began to speak about the true temple, when he began to speak about how Jesus was the true law, those words cost Stephen his life. He was stoned, martyred for the Christian faith. And, and, And when he was martyred, everything changed in Jerusalem. Because now, I don't know, for several months, 5 or 6 months, numbers of people had been coming to faith in Jesus Christ. By this time, as many as 20 or 30,000 people had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It couldn't be going any better until now. And now everything changes. At the martyrdom of Stephen, the church begins to scatter all across Judea and Samaria. And, and it seems as if one of the ringleaders of this scattering was a man by the name of Saul. We were introduced to him briefly last week. That, that here was this man named Saul who was there when Stephen was martyred. Who, who, who saw it took place. Who approved of it. And now, think about it. As people came to faith in Jesus Christ, we saw it in Acts chapter 2. They gathered together every day in the temple to worship. But not only did they gather in the temple, they gathered every day where? in each other's homes. House by house, they would go and they would break bread together, fellowship together, share Lord's Supper together, sit under the teaching of the apostles. But now, now, when persecution breaks out in Jerusalem, as they're gathered house by house, a man named Saul goes from house to house. Imagine what it must have been like To be a believer in that time, a believer in that day, and you're sitting around your home, you're having a Bible study, you're praying, and then all of a sudden this madman walks in. He takes your wife, he takes your child, he takes them off to prison. When this persecution begins to break out, they scatter. In an attempt to, to save their lives rather than lose their lives, the church begins to scatter. But, but, but listen, it's an amazing thing, right? Because what's going to happen is Caiaphas, he tried as he executed Stephen, he tried to stop this movement of followers of Jesus, but he can't stop it because this persecution that they're now levying against these believers This persecution is going to be the very thing that God uses to expand His church. And now, as believers scatter, there's one man in particular named Philip. We don't know much about Philip. What we do know is that in Acts chapter 6, when the apostles were trying to figure out how to minister to all the widows in their congregation, they appointed seven men. Stephen was one of them, and so was Philip. And so now here's Philip. He finds himself where? In Samaria. And if you're a good Bible student, if you've read the Bible much, if you've been a part of some Bible studies, you might be familiar with Samaria, and you might be familiar with the, the, the relationship that Samaria had with Judea, Jerusalem, the Jewish people. Because what had happened was in 722 B.C., just as God had promised through the prophets, the Assyrians, they came into the northern kingdom of Israel because of their disobedience and they took them captive. But they didn't take everybody captive. Some people remained in that northern area. And over the years, as they remained in that northern area, do you know what they did? They began to marry other people. They began to marry the Canaanites, and, and so, so as they began to develop their, their own identity, the Jewish people, right, in the southern kingdom, they look at these people in Samaria as what? Not Jewish enough, because after all, they had intermingled. They had married people that were not ethnic Jews. And so this animosity began to develop between the, the people who lived in Judea and the people who lived in Samaria. And there was this hatred between these two groups that lasted centuries. In fact, what the Samaritans did is that they worshipped and believed in the God of the Jews. They worshipped and believed in Yahweh, but be, they began to develop their own faith practices. For example, they had their own take on the first five books of the Bible, what we call the law or the Torah. And and they 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 said the prophets and those other writings that they didn't count, those were not a part of their Bible. Not only that, because there was such animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, the Samaritans obviously could not come to Jerusalem and, and worship at the temple, and so they built their own temple. A temple that one of the high priests uh, in in, in Jerusalem finally destroyed. I mean, it was a terrible history between the Samaritans and the Jews. And if you think about it, now here you have Philip. It says here in Acts chapter 8 that Philip finds himself where? Samaria. And and honestly, if you're Philip, this is not where you expect it to be. This is the last place on the face of the earth that you would want to be. Why? Why? Philip's a Jew. He's a completely ethnic Jew. He had grown up his whole life being taught to hate, just like the other Jews, to hate the Samaritans. Yet here's where he finds himself. Philip, much rather, had been back in Jerusalem before Stephen was martyred for the faith, when things were going well, when life was going well, when the church was growing there in Jerusalem, when everything was moving along. But Philip finds himself now in Samaria. But, but this is what's so amazing about the story. Even though Philip finds himself in circumstances that were far less than favorable, you see what he does. His circumstances, that place that he does not necessarily want to be, doesn't change his purpose, doesn't change his mission in life. Look at what the text says. So, so you read on about, about Philip there in Samaria, and look at what it says. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Now, obviously we weren't there that day. And and Luke, the author of Acts, he does not give us all the details, does he? He does not give us all the details about what Philip actually said. But you can begin to imagine the message that Philip preached in Samaria. I don't know, I wasn't there, and, and Luke doesn't record it for us, but I can imagine he must have said something like this. I know, I know you look at me, and you see me as a Jew, but listen, God has done something. He has given his son Jesus. He is the true Messiah who lived and died and rose again for each of us. And Jesus has come to break down walls of hostility to make us into one covenant people of God. And and what it says, right, is that they paid attention. And you can understand why this message was so unique, something they had not heard before and and so powerful. And it says that that Philip did these signs and wonders. He was full of the Spirit. Verse 7, unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. And you can understand why there was much joy. Because in that city people were learning that God really did love them. And people were learning that there was a Messiah who wasn't simply a Jewish Messiah, a Messiah for all people, a Messiah who would bring everyone together through His death and resurrection. They were learning this and and receiving it, and and the city was changing as a result of it. They were having joy as as people were being delivered from the bondage of sin and, and healed and everything else that took place in that city on that day. You see what takes place. So you see, on the one hand, you have a man named Philip whose circumstances changed drastically. And I can imagine that Samaria was the last place on the face of the planet uh, that Philip wanted to be. But while his circumstances changed drastically, his mission did not. His purpose in life did not. And I, and I just want to remind you this morning uh, that, that, that on the one hand, you can live for God's glory and be used in unexpected ways. I imagine that, that, that six months prior, when Philip gave his life to Jesus, he would have never have dreamt. That he would find himself in Samaria telling people about this Jesus who died and rose again. But when you live for God's glory, man, you know this from experience, don't you? When you make that choice to be used by God, when you take that step of faith, when you open up your hands and say, God, everything I have belongs to you. You give me what you want to give me. You take from me what you want to take from me. When you live an open-handed life before God, you better believe because you know it from experience that he will use you in unexpected ways ways now with that said I I just want you to think about some things one is this sometimes the place you don't want to be is the exact place God wants you to be because here's what I know when I look across this room and when I think about the crowd that gathered in, in our early service this morning here's what I know many of us in this room are not where we thought we would be life has happened I know it right Some of you are finding yourselves in circumstances that you never thought you would be in. You found yourself in the midst of heartbreak. You've lost that job that that, that you had for so many years. You didn't get that promotion that you thought you would get. There's conflict in your family that you never thought there would be that kind of conflict before. You're not where you thought you would be. But, But listen, my friend, and just hear me. That even though you're in that place that you never thought you would be, even though you're in those circumstances that are less than favorable, even though you're in that place that, that you never would have dreamt of being in, it doesn't mean that God does not have purpose for you. And it doesn't mean that God does not know what He's doing. And I believe, right, that sometimes that place that you don't want to be is the exact place that God wants you to be because in the midst of that place that you don't want to be, on the one hand, we know this, that God is doing a work in you in that place, but also He's going to do a work through you because, now watch this, where God wants you to be is the place He has uniquely qualified you and gifted you to be a blessing to others. Right? Right? Because you know this, it's not where you want to be. If you could write your own story, you'd be somewhere completely different than where you are right now. It would be a different job, a different family scenario. It would be somewhere completely different. But in the midst of that place where you don't want to be, man, the God of all creation, He has uniquely qualified you for that place. Because think about it, right? There you are in that job that you don't want to be in. But man, listen. You can minister to those people on your job far better than I can or anybody else in this room because God in His sovereign design he knows that you're there. He knows that you're in those unfavorable circumstances. He knows that you might not want to be there. But just because you don't want to be there, now watch this, you've got to understand this, that doesn't give you or I the reason to put the mission of God on hold until circumstances get better. No, maybe in your life, the place you are in right now has been designed by God so, because you are uniquely qualified in that place and gifted in that place to be a blessing to other people because you know it like I do in that place where you're at, even as unfavorable as it might be. God has given you experiences. He's brought you through some things. He's taught you some things about life and himself and that place you are at that you don't want to be. There are people around you that need to hear your story, that only you can minister to, you see. So for Philip, even though he was in a place that he did not want to be, not for a moment did it change his circumstance or change his mission. Not for a moment did it change his purpose. He, he was, it changed his circumstances, obviously. But did not change the calling of God on his life. We were um, at home last weekend and, and I was cooking dinner. And, and every now and then we like to go out and get one of those Boston Butts and barbecue it. And I, I have a smoker and I have a crock pot. And it's a lot easier than a crock pot and a smoker. And I've got this great recipe to do it in, in the crock pot. And so early that morning, I, I put the the, the the Boston Butt in the crock pot and all the things that go into the Boston Butt. And, and so by the end of the day, four or five o'clock in the afternoon, the whole house smelled like. Boston butt, and that's a glorious smell, and, and so it just filled the home, and and so 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 I had uh, made Boston butt, and, and you know, Hudson likes broccoli because he's weird, and so we had a broccoli for him, and, and I made some corn on the cob, and, and I had some potatoes that I made, and and, and I, I went out and bought those Hawaiian rolls, you know, the kind of the, the buns, not just the rolls, the buns, the Hawaiian buns, that sweet bread with the barbecue on it, man, it was going to be a wonderful dinner, right, and so so I fixed all of our plates, Luke's grown boy, so he grabbed two sandwiches, right, and and I had a sandwich steaks. He had a sandwich. Our barbecue piled high. And, and, and when Hudson sat down, right, he, he, um, he didn't want his meat on his bun. He wanted his meat, his bun, his corn that was shaved off the cob, right? And he wanted his broccoli and his potatoes. And so we sat down and we all began to eat. And, 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 and as we were sitting there eating, what I saw with my eyes just absolutely shocked me. There was my five-year-old Hudson. He had the bun wide open. He put the broccoli in, he put the corn in, he closed it up, and had a broccoli sandwich. And as he was eating his broccoli sandwich, he was saying, this is the best thing ever. And there I am. I mean, honestly, I want to punish him. Because this just isn't right, right? I mean, like, at the end of the day, what's wrong with my kid? You understand? Like, like I just don't have a normal kid, and, and I, I just want a normal kid who eats barbecue, right? And you've been there. Maybe not with your kid, but you've been there. You've been there when you've made the statement. When you've made the statement, I just want things to be normal. Don't you? But listen, listen, listen. Can I just be honest with you? And this is going to be worth the price of admission this morning, okay? God really doesn't care if your life is normal. He cares that your life is purposeful. You understand? And he will take you outside of your realm of normalcy to use you in unexpected ways, in unexpected places, even challenging places as you continue to live for his glory. So on the one hand, we see here in the life of Philip a person who's open to living for the glory of God, and God uses him in unexpected ways, in unexpected places. But on the other hand, there's another man in the story. Look at what it says. You come down, you look at what it says in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon. Who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest. This man is the power of God that is called great. Now, obviously, like Philip, we don't know much about Simon. But he was a big deal in Samaria, and, and, and I don't know how he was able to do it. Maybe it was sleight of hand. Uh, maybe maybe he, it was demonic influence. I had no idea, but he was able to deceive people with his powerful acts. He was able to work acts of power, and people looked at him as if he was a god. Right? But go on. Look what it says. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, He had amazed them with his magic. Luke wants us to know that for a long time, Simon had influence over this area. How long has Philip been in this area? Not long. A couple days, right? In a short time, people are turning away from Simon and turning to the God of all creation because in Philip, what they see is something they did not see in Simon, real power. The power of the gospel, the power of the risen Lord. Look at what it says. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Now, watch this so amazing. Even Simon believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Simon, for years now, he's been deceiving people with his magical arts, whatever it was, hand, demonic influences, I don't know. But for years now, he's been deceiving people. But now when Philip comes on the scene, he sees power as well, a power like he had never seen before in his life. And so he goes along. He believes as well. Not only does he believe, he's baptized. But look, I want you to know what Luke says here because I think Luke wants us to see something very specific. Look at what it says. Verse 13 again, even Simon himself believed and after being baptized he what? He continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. I think Luke is telling us something about Simon. It wasn't Jesus that Simon was impressed with. He was impressed by the miracles, the signs. And so he attaches himself to Philip. He can't get enough of it. He he is enthralled by this power. Now, now, In the meantime, word has gotten back to the apostles in Jerusalem about what's taking place in Samaria. And Peter and John, they make their way to Samaria. Now, let's just be honest, right? Peter and John, they grew up as what? Ethnic Jews. They grew up Hating and despising Samaritans. I know the gospel had changed them. I know they had trusted Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. But but let's just be honest. Probably under the surface, there was still this skepticism. And maybe even some hatred towards these Samaritans. And so imagine as Peter and John go to Samaria, they got to know. There's just no way. There's no way that Samaritans will give their life to Jesus. So they go. And look what the text says. This gets really interesting. So just hang with me for a moment. We're going to have a little theology lesson here, okay? So, So Peter and John, they come down and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 15. Now, here's the theology lesson. Ready? If you're in this room and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you belong to Jesus, when did you receive the Holy Spirit? on the day that you gave your life to Jesus, right? When you gave your life to Jesus, Jesus gave you the gift of His Holy Spirit who dwells in every single believer, who instructs us in the ways of the Lord, who empowers us for ministry. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've received the Holy Spirit, and you received the Holy Spirit on the day that you were saved, right? But something's happening here in Acts chapter 8 because you have Samaritans who are believers, who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, but they have not yet received the Holy Spirit. The question is why, right? And I just want you to know, this is unique. This is unique to the book of Acts. This is a way that God chose to work in this particular situation for a very specific purpose. You know why God delayed to send the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans? Because the apostles needed to see it. You understand? And so did the Samaritans. The apostles and Samaritans needed to see together the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in the Samaritans. Because, now watch this, as the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit and the apostles saw it, what would happen? They would see with their own eyes, what? That they were now one with each other. And so God delays God delays till the apostles get there so that the apostles can see it with their eyes and so that the Samaritans can see it with their eyes. And so there, now watch, come in, listen. So he lays, they lay their hands on the Samaritans, they pray, and the Holy Spirit comes and indwells the Samaritan believers. Now again, I wasn't there, you weren't there, and Luke doesn't give us all the details of what happened in that moment, but apparently when the Holy Spirit comes in that moment and indwells those Samaritan believers... It was a powerful moment. And I don't know if there were more miracles that took place in that moment, more signs, more wonders, but something happened, something so powerful, something so life-altering, something so life-changing that causes Simon to speak up. Look at what it says. This magician who had deceived people for years, when he sees this, look at what it says in, in, in verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. You see what Simon is saying, right? i got to learn that trick. That's a good one. Peter, come here. How much will that cost me? For you to teach me how to do that, I need to know how to do that. What, $5, $10, $100? What will it cost me to learn how to do that? And then you see what happens. Verse 20, Peter looks at Simon and says to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For, listen to this, your heart is not right before God. Verse 21 or 22, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, and then you go on the next couple verses. Simon asked that, that Peter would pray for him. And, and we're left in this story with a cliffhanger. We don't know what happened with Simon. Did he repent? Did he not? But I want you to pause for a moment and think about this statement that Peter makes to Simon. Simon tries to buy the gift of the Spirit. And, and Peter says, verse 21, Your heart is not right. Before God. I mean, wait a minute. Because back up in verse 13, back up in verse 13, right? Simon believed. Not only did Simon believe, he was baptized. He saw the power of God. But yet, here in this verse, Peter looks at Simon and says, Something did not happen in your life because your heart is not right before God. And as we begin to kind of conclude our time together, here's the question I want to ask you. Is your heart right before God? You see, there's a contrast here in this passage of Scripture. On the one hand, we will live for God's glory and be used in unexpected ways. And on the other hand, you can choose this morning to live for your glory and be exposed for your sinfulness. And that's what's happening in the life of Simon, is it not? In these moments, the deep inner parts of his heart are being exposed, right? And so here's the question for you. Is your heart right before God? What are the indicators? What are the signs that your heart this morning might not be right before God? Let me give you a few ways. One, you've blended in instead of turning from sin. You follow? I mean, this is what happened with Simon, right? He blended in. It looked like in verse 13 that he had a conversion experience. But we know better because in verse 13 we also read that there was something amiss that that he began to follow because he saw miracles and powers and signs. In other words, there was something that attracted Simon to the faith, but it wasn't Jesus, you see. And maybe you're here this morning. You've been coming now for several weeks, several months. Several years. And there's something about God, there's something about the church that's attractive to you. That's why you still keep coming. Maybe it's the friendships you've made. You've made some really good friends here, and praise the Lord. Maybe when you come, you like that you feel hopeful, right? There's something good that's said, and it's different than what the world says, and you like that it just makes you feel good on the inside. Maybe it's something else. You like the music. You like the way we serve our community. There's something here that's attractive to you. And, And because it's attractive, you keep coming back and you've kind of blended in. You maybe have even gone through the motions of going through a new members class and you've been baptized and all that kind of stuff, right? You've blended in, but there's something missing. Your heart still is not right before God because what hasn't happened in your life is that you've never actually turned from your sins. And this is the case with Simon, right? He blends in. He's attracted to the faith. He's attracted to the work of Philip, but he never turns from his sin. He never repents from this life that he lived that was all about his glory and making his own name great. He never turned from that. And I wonder in this room this morning if there are those of us who've blended in and maybe even blended in for years. We've never turned. We've never confessed to God that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We've never let the Spirit of God break us of our sinfulness and show us our desperate need for forgiveness. You've bargained instead of surrendered. This past week, uh, I was driving where stacy was driving her car on wednesday night she called me something's wrong with my car i said okay so so i got home wednesday night and, and thursday morning I, I took it to the automotive shop and as i was taking it to the automotive shop it was obvious that something was wrong with the transmission like i barely got it there i thought i was going to stop on the side of the road and get it towed and all those kinds of things and so i dropped it off at the automotive shop they said they would look at it and call me later in the day to let me know what was going on and so i waited and waited and they finally called me and when they called me this is what they said they said you need a new transmission your transmission needs to replaced. And I asked the obvious question how much is that going to cost me? $5,000. I'm a Baptist preacher, right? Baptist preachers don't have $5,000 laying around for auto transmissions. We just don't, right? And so I said, okay. But they said, maybe you can call Chrysler and they'll work with you because my warranty had expired six months ago. Right? That's always the way it works. And so I said, okay. So I called Chrysler. We went back and forth on the phone for a long time about this and that. And they finally said, have it towed to the Chrysler dealership, and we'll see what we can do. And so I had it towed to the Chrysler dealership, and and I got it there, and and it was there all day yesterday. and, 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 And the guy called me, and he said, here's what we'll do. Tell me if you want to try this first. Why don't I charge you $200 to service your transmission and see if that makes a difference? And if it doesn't make a difference, then we'll do the $5,000 replacement. Do you want to start with $200 servicing of the transmission? To which I said, no, just replace the transmission. No, I did not say that. I said, absolutely, absolutely, service the transmission. Let's see what happens, right? Well, they service the transmission. Come to find out, it was just that the filter had got really clogged up, right? So they changed the filter, and now it works as if it's new, right? Praise the Lord. $200 is a lot better than $5,000. All that to say, listen to me. We are a people that want minimum of investment and maximum results. I'd much rather pay 200 dollars for a new filter than 5,000 dollars for the whole thing. And so what is the minimum I can invest in this car and it still work? You, you follow? I think that many of us do the same thing with our faith. We're looking for a bargain. God, what's the minimum I can invest my life and still get maximum results? What's the minimum times I have to come to church to get you off my back? Right? Let's just be honest. What's the minimum I have to do as a moral person to get myself into heaven? What's the minimum I have to give in the offering plate to, to not feel guilty? What's the minimum I have to do to get maximum results? And I can imagine here with Simon, that's the question. What's the minimum? What's it going to cost me just to have this particular power? And, and what Simon failed to realize and what we failed to realize is God is not interested in your minimum. He's interested in your maximum, right? Because when you realize that you're a sinner who is standing in condemnation before the God of all creation, but forgiveness only comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus, when you realize the depths of what Christ has done for you on the cross, right, it's no longer about the minimums. It's about surrender. God, because you've done this for me and provide a way for me to have salvation, I don't want to give you my minimums. I want to give you everything that I am. You see, when you're focused on you, right, right? It's always going to be about the minimums. But listen to this. You've brought God down instead of lifting him up. You've brought God down instead of lifting him up. This is what Simon did. What did Simon, or how did Simon see God? As a tool. A tool to use to get something else out of life. A resource. Bringing God down. God, how can I use you to get what I want? And how many of us in this room, right, in our sinfulness, have brought God down. We see Him as a tool at our disposal to use to get something out of life. We see Him as a resource to run to when things aren't going well for us, right? Rather than seeing Him as the exalted King, rather than seeing our Christ as the Lord of Lords who is worthy of our worship and is worthy of our surrender. What I'm trying to show you this morning is that there are some of us in this room, they have that we have lived for our glory instead of God's glory. And even this morning, right now, as you hear these words coming out of my mouth, God is exposing you because you know it's true. You know it's true. You know that you've blended in instead of turning from sin. You know you've bargained instead of surrendered. And you know you've brought God down. And today for you, there's good news. You don't have to live that way anymore. Today, Everything in your life can change. Today, you can find the joy of living in a relationship with the God of all creation. And today, you can find the joy of living for His glory. Today, if you'll turn, if you'll turn from your sins once and for all and give Jesus your life, the one who came and lived the life that you could not live, a perfect life, and then went to a cross, and died in your place because you were the one who deserved to be on the cross. You were the one who deserved punishment for your sins. But Jesus took your punishment for you. Not only did he take your punishment for you, He rose from the dead three days later, proving to us once and for all He is the God of all creation who is able to forgive and able to give us new and eternal life. And this morning, if you'll just be honest with yourself and honest before God, today can be a day of life change where finally, once and for all, you embrace not a church, not religion, not some ritualistic stuff, that you embrace Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. And so now, as we end our time, In the back of this room, there are two crosses. We're going to sing a song of imitation. And this morning, if you've never turned from your sins and given your life to Jesus as Lord of your life, there'll be some counselors, some volunteers at these crosses who would love to pray with you and help you today to begin a relationship with Jesus. Now, for those of us in this room who are followers of Jesus, who've been living for Jesus for a long time, maybe you find yourself where Philip found himself. An unexpected place. That if you could write your story, you'd never put yourself in the place that you're in right now. But today, maybe the Spirit of God is just reminding you, it's going to be okay. Because even in that unexpected place, there's ministry for you. There's purpose for you. The mission of God has not been put on hold. And maybe in God's sovereign design, you are in that place be a blessing to somebody else that you never in your wildest dreams thought you'd be a blessing to. And maybe this morning, as you have a time of invitation, you want to come and gather around front just as a sign of commitment and dedication to God and pray to God, God, help me in this unexpected place to live on mission and with purpose. However, God leads you to respond to this time of invitation. You respond as he leads. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning and for time together in your word. And I pray right now, For that man, that woman, that student, that teenager who might be in this room, who maybe for years now has been showing up Sunday after Sunday, but has never embraced the God of all creation, never embraced Jesus as Lord, and never turned from sin, I pray this morning that person would find a relationship with you, peace with God. And Father, for those of us in this room this morning who might find ourselves in unexpected places, help us to put our eyes on you and to recognize that it might be that in this season you're about to do a work in us and through us that's beyond our wildest dreams and imaginations and so help us to stay faithful i ask faithful to your call faithful to walk with you in intimacy so father in these final moments we're trusting that you're going to have your way in jesus name amen you rise to your feet as we have a time of imitation together, you come now as the Spirit of God leads you.